the good news is that that eternity with God is open and available to all who will come to God on God's terms. Well, good morning, beloved. It is good to see all of you here this morning. And I'd invite you to open your Bibles, please, to Mark <clears throat> chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Jim read that for us just a moment ago. Jesus is returning uh, from a teaching tour in the region of Galilee. He had been gone for some time. Last week we saw that as he returned, uh, he demonstrated his power and authority to forgive sin. We saw the, the miracle of the healing of the paralytic, but that wasn't the greatest miracle that was demonstrated there on that occasion. The greatest miracle, the greatest amazing piece of, of teaching was the fact that Jesus has the power to forgive sin. We ask the question, what, what profit is it to gain the whole world and let yet lose your own soul? What, what value is it to be able to walk only to have to walk into hell? Not much value, is it? So the amazing thing, the, the point of last week was that Jesus has the power to forgive sin. It was a clear revelation of His deity. Only God can forgive sin. Jesus continued His teaching, though, and His preaching ministry. That was absolutely characteristic of Him throughout the three and a half years of His public ministry. Jesus was constantly teaching. He was constantly preaching. He healed on occasions, but he continually was preaching. Maybe he had Joel chapter 3, verse 2 in mind. In Joel chapter 3, verse 2, we read this, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But then Paul quotes that, in Romans chapter 10 and he expands on it a little bit and I think what Paul does in Romans is exactly what Jesus was doing in his public ministry and this listen to what Paul says as he quotes from Joel chapter 3 verse 2 in chapter 10 of Romans Paul says this whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Great question, isn't it? How can people believe in something that they've never heard about? Think about the people that you know that are in your sphere of influence. At school, you, you boys and girls uh, are, are in school for a significant portion of your days, Monday through Friday. How about your friends that you go to school with? I mean, do they know anything about Jesus? Have you ever taken the opportunity to talk with them about why you go to church, why you you know, go to Sunday school, and, and do they understand? Do they know anything about Jesus at all? 
How about at work? Now, I'm not suggesting that in either place, at school or at work, you, you should stop what your responsibilities are and, and talk about the Lord. But if you're out on the playground, if you're at lunch, if you're at coffee break, if you're you know, walking from one office to another, maybe there's an opportunity, a natural opportunity there for you to talk about what God's been doing in your life. Maybe you know a coworker or a fellow student who's gone through a hard time and you can just say, you know, would you mind if I prayed for you? If you pray for them right there, they'll know you've done it. But even if you don't, you've let them know that you're going to and that you're concerned about them. How are they going to hear about salvation? How are they going to hear about eternal life? How are they going to know that God even cares for them if they don't hear it and maybe God will use you in school at work in community activities and events maybe God will use you as the one who will speak the truth into the life of someone else Jesus of course was the 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 greatest proclaimer of truth that this world has ever seen in John chapter 1, verse 18, we read this. It says, no one has seen, and it's speaking about Jesus, it says, no one has seen God at any time. But the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He, that's the Son, has explained Him. That's the Father. Jesus came to teach us about God the Father to reveal to us things that we would never ever have comprehended about who God is if Jesus had not come. You see, you and I in our, in our great human wisdom and understanding, we're never going to get it right about spiritual things. Proverbs says that there's a way that seems right to a man but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Look around the world and you can see that there's no end to the humanistic ideas about God. Maybe it's like the Hindu believes. 280 million gods and goddesses. That boggles the mind. 280 million. How would you ever know that what you were doing was acceptable? And to whom is it acceptable? And is that God or goddess able to do anything for you? You don't know. There's all kinds of ideas. Probably the most prevalent idea is that we can work our way to heaven. Oh, and it shows up in all kinds of religions. And see, that's the difference between a religion and genuine biblical Christianity. A religion is founded upon what I do to make my way to heaven. It's works-based. 
Biblical Christianity is not works-based. It is based on faith. It accepts what Jesus did for me on my behalf. What I could not do so that I might be acceptable in the sight of Almighty God. It's not me working my way to heaven. It's me accepting what God has done for me. That's why it talks about, for example, in Romans chapter 6, it says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a gift. Do you work to earn a gift? If you work to earn something, that's your wages, right? That's what you've worked to earn. It's due to you. It's what's owed to you. And so many people try to work their way to heaven. But you can't. What's the standard for heaven? Perfection. <laughs> so are we perfect? No. And even if from this moment forward for the rest of our lives, however long that might be, even if we could be perfect, what would we do about our past? It doesn't just go away. It's not like we, we fool ourselves, especially here at the beginning of the year, we're, we're just going to turn over a new leaf. We're going to do better this year. Well, that's appealing to us because it's focused on us. But that's not how God operates. So even if from this moment forward I could live a perfect life, I'd still have a past that was imperfect and not acceptable to God. Jesus proclaimed the truth about God. He proclaimed the unvarnished, raw truth. And not everybody liked it. Certainly the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes didn't like it because it went against what they believed and what they taught. And what they taught was you work your way to heaven. And the Pharisees particularly were considered to be the most righteous and the most holy ones in all of Israel. Boy, if anybody was going to get into heaven, it was going to be a Pharisee because they were meticulous in keeping the 613 laws of Moses. You thought there were only 10. Well, there were 10 in the Decalogue, in the Ten Commandments, but if you go through the whole Old Testament, there's 613 of them. Things that the Jewish people had to do in their worship to God. Now that's a burden that nobody can bear, right? It's terrible. But it proves the point that man cannot work his way to God. If you and I are ever going to be acceptable in God's sight, we're going to have to realize that we're not perfect. We're going to have to realize that we're not acceptable. And we're going to have to get on our knees. And we're going to have to say, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We're going to have to receive that gift 
of forgiveness and eternal life. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, we are working to memorize that verse. We read it earlier. This was the summary of Jesus' ministry. He came and he said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Everything that the Old Testament prophets were prophesying about, everything that they were telling you was going to happen, it's here. The time is fulfilled. This is the moment that all of the sacrificial system, all of the prophets were leading up to. Here it is. So what should be your response? Repent and believe in the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, the word means good news. So what's the good news? Well, here it is. The good news is because you can't earn heaven, God is providing it for you free by faith. That's the good news. The good news is that, that eternity with God is open and available to all who will come to God on God's terms, not your own. On God's terms. That's the good news. And Jesus comes preaching the good news. He comes saying, repent and believe the gospel. Now with that as our background, Jesus is continuing his preaching and teaching ministry there in Capernaum. And in verse 14, he passed by and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. Levi is also known as Matthew. It's not uncommon for folks to have two names. In fact, there were, were several even of the disciples that had two names. Um, we're familiar with Simon, right? Peter is his other name. Bartholomew and Nathaniel, depending on which gospel you're reading, depends on which name is used, but it's the same guy. They had the same, uh, it was the same person with different names. Judas, the son of James, not Judas Iscariot, but Judas the son of James, is also called Labias or Thaddeus. Depends on which gospel you read. And, and it's kind of like you. Maybe you have a first name and a, and a middle name. Maybe you go by your middle name and most people know you by that name, but you know, for legal documents and things, you've got to use your first name and, and it's the same person, just a different name. Maybe you have different names in different contexts. How many of you had a nickname in high school that you're glad you don't have anymore? <laughs> same person, right? It's still you. But depending on what group you're in, you get that particular name. So here in Mark's Gospel, he's called Levi. In the other Gospels, he's called Matthew. I'll probably refer to him as Matthew because that's the most common name that we associate with this fellow. He was a tax collector. He worked for Rome. He worked for the conquerors. He worked for the oppressor of the Jewish people. 
And so the Jews considered Matthew and all like him to be traitors. They were not very well liked or appreciated. And unfortunately, throughout the Roman Empire, whether Jewish or not, tax collectors were notorious for their abuses. You know, these days, we pay our taxes to the federal government, and it's according to a fixed rate and so forth. And if, if you can understand that stuff, you can figure out what you owe and you see what the rates are and so forth. In those days, there were not necessarily fixed rates. Each province was required to provide so much tax revenue. And it was up to the tax collector who had a lot of leeway in how they handled things to make sure that the tax to the Roman government was paid by that province. But anything else that they could get out of the people was money in the pocket. Now there were four kinds <coughs> of, of taxes primarily in the Roman Empire. There was, <coughs> excuse me, there was a tax on cattle. So if you had any kind of, of um, farm animal, sheep, goats, you know, pigs, uh, cows, whatever, any kind of cattle, you paid a, a, an annual tax on that. And maybe it was a semi-annual tax, and maybe it was a quarterly tax, and maybe it was whenever the tax collector wanted to collect it, but you paid a tax on your animals. That was one kind. The other was a land tax. If you were a landowner, there was a tax that was collected. Another tax was the customs tax. If you were in business and you made things or you sold things, you had to pay a tax on that, a customs tax. If you were um, a, a shipper and, and there were people who kind of specialized in moving a product from this area to this area. If you were one of those guys who ran caravans, you paid a tax. It was kind of in the form of a toll as you went along the highways and, and you would pay that tax. And then the fourth one was the uh, tax on the profits from a profession. Whatever your job was, if it was something that made you a profit, you had to pay a tax on that. So things haven't changed much. Governments always have had their hands in the pockets of their citizens. Things don't change. Now there was a tax booth here, and this is where Matthew was sitting, and it was probably very strategically located. There was, through the city of Capernaum, a major route that connected Damascus over here with the Mediterranean coast over here. And it went through Capernaum, right across the top of the Sea of Galilee. And so think about it. Here's what Matthew was able to collect. There was all of that great fishing industry there on the Sea of Galilee. Matthew got to collect on that. Every day, fishermen would go out, they would fish, they would come in. There was Matthew, ready to receive the tax on the day's catch. 
and the caravans would be going by and people would be traveling from Damascus and from areas in the east out to the Mediterranean coast. And there was Matthew, ready to receive the taxes on all the things that were passing through Capernaum. And there was Matthew ready to receive the tax for all the people in Capernaum who owned land and all the folks outside of Capernaum in that general area who had flocks and herds. There was a lot of money coming into that tax office. A lot of money. Now, sometimes we think that this is the first time that Jesus and Matthew ever saw each other, and I don't think that's true at all. You remember... Jesus had been involved with things there in Capernaum, and, and Matthew would have known that. He would have known that. He would have heard Jesus speak on many occasions. He would have been aware of the miracles that Jesus performed, especially those right there in Capernaum. Remember Matthew chap or Mark chapter 1, verse 23? There was the cleansing of the man with the unclean spirit right there in the synagogue of Capernaum. Matthew knew about that. I don't know if he was there that day or not, but, you know, something like that makes the Capernaum news, doesn't it? And, and you didn't need Twitter back then to get word around quickly. People talked. They didn't just sit there and do this. They actually talked to each other. And word got around. He also would have known about Peter's mother-in-law, who was healed from her fever and illness. And, and Jesus goes over and he gets her up and she not only is well, but she's fully recovered enough that she can prepare a meal for everybody. Matthew would have known about that. He would also have known about the multitudes who were healed later that day at the end of the Sabbath. Jesus, it says, you know, he healed many who came to him. The whole city came around. Everybody that was sick, they all wanted to be healed. And surely, Surely Matthew would have known about the healing of this paralytic guy. This may have just occurred the day before or two days before. It wasn't long before Jesus encountered Matthew there at the tax booth. Matthew knew about Jesus. He knew about the miracles. He knew about the claims. He knew about some of the teaching. And so when Jesus comes by, and there's Matthew... Jesus looks at him and says, come, follow me. That was the moment of decision in Matthew's life. And he knew it. Matthew, I think, had been experiencing in his own life what Jesus will later explain, and it's recorded in the Gospel of John on the night in which he was betrayed. Jesus there about three and a half years from this point, three years from this point, we'll, we'll talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he'll say in chapter 16, verse 8, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And that's the ministry of the Spirit of God even today throughout this world. He is convicting the hearts and minds of people of sin. I don't know about you, but I've never really had to try to convince somebody that they weren't perfect. We all know that, don't we? We all have that inner sense that there's 
Now, there might be a lot of good in our lives, but there's always something that we're ashamed of, always something that we want to hide, always something that we don't want others to know about. Why? Because we know instinctively that we are sinners. We may not put that label on it, but that's what we know. And the Spirit of God convicts us of our sin. The Spirit of God also convicts us of righteousness because we know that no matter how many times we try to turn over a new leaf, no matter how many times we try to reform and straighten up our lives and make things good, no matter how many times we do that, we just can't do it perfectly. We know instinctively that we are not righteous people. We don't do right. We don't think right. We're just not righteous people. And judgment. Why are people afraid to die? Because they know that after death is judgment. Hebrews says it's appointed unto a man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has set eternity in the hearts of people. We know instinctively there's, there's more out there. I, I, I don't know what it is, but, but there's more. This life is not the end. There's something that's waiting for me after death. And when we don't know Jesus Christ as our Savior, the only thing that death looks like is terrifying. Because we sense that there's a judgment to come and we know instinctively that we're not ready. We're not going to stand. And so, Matthew's moment of decision comes. And he gets up and he follows Jesus. Now think about what that means. Think about what that means. He got up and he left a comfortable government job. A wealth-making job. A job that secured his future. He got up and he followed Jesus. But think what else that means. It means that Matthew had to publicly admit that the direction he was going was the wrong direction. That's tough, isn't it? That kind of pricks at our pride a little bit. And you and I, or at least I, I don't know about you, but I don't ever like to admit that I'm wrong. You know? I want to I convince people that I'm right all the time. Well, you know that's not correct. But that's what we hope for. We want to put our best face forward. We want everybody to think well of us. We want everybody to think that, man, we've got it together. We're great. That's the public image 
that we want to put out there. And the problem is we have a backstage view of ourselves and we know, we know that we are not together. We know that we don't have it right. We know that we're not perfect, but we don't want to admit it because pride gets in the way. That's what makes repentance so hard. Look with me, please, at verse 17. Jesus had gone to dinner with Matthew. Matthew, here's another evidence, by the way, of his transformation, of his salvation. He wants to share Jesus with his friends. Now, who were his friends? Tax collectors, other notorious people in the society. Those were his friends. And he wanted to share with them what he has just discovered. That, beloved, is a mark of genuine conversion, of genuine salvation. You want to share with other people what you yourselves have experienced. The forgiveness of sin, the gift of eternal life, the hope, the joy, the peace that comes with that. That you don't have to carry that burden of shame and sin anymore. It's been washed by the blood of the Lamb. And that joy and that peace and that relief that you feel, you now want to share with those who are closest to you. And that's exactly what Matthew does. And he gets all of his buddies and he says, come on over to the house. I want you to meet somebody. And there's Jesus. And he's sitting beside Matthew or with Matthew and all, here's all these people. And, and they're out on the, on the fringes. Capernaum is not that big a place that word doesn't travel fast. There's the scribes, there's the Pharisees, there's the religious leaders. Remember, Jesus has already attracted their attention, and so they've sent some delegations, they've sent some spies up from Jerusalem. Hey, keep an eye on this Jesus guy. We want to know what's going on. And so they, they question his disciples. What is he doing? Eating with publicans and sinners. He's eating with the riffraff. He's unclean. This is horrible. What does Jesus say? What's his response to this? Look at verse 17. When Jesus, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Well, we can relate to that, can't we? I mean, when was the last time you called your doctor and said, hey, doc, I'd like an appointment. I want to come in and tell you how good I feel. I mean, I just, you know, it couldn't be better. I haven't felt this good in years and years and years. And I just want to come in and tell you, and, and by the way, I'll pay you the 200 bucks for the appointment just to tell you how good I feel. No, we don't do that, do we? It is when we are sick, if we have good sense, that we go to see the physician. Sometimes we just, you know, we want to put that off, you know, and we don't want to admit that we're not feeling well. But when we're sick, we want the physician. We want that input. We want that help that the physician can offer to us because 
we know we need it. So Jesus uses a very common illustration. He says, those that are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he really puts out that little zinger. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, unfortunately, some translations leave those last two words off, and they are the most, most critical of all. They don't appear in some of the ancient translations in the Vulgate and others, but they do appear in the oldest manuscripts that we have. And I wish that all of the translators would have included them or at least put them down there in a footnote because I think they were original to Mark's text. They do appear in the parallel passages in Matthew and Luke. So I have no problem thinking that they appeared in Mark as well. And that's the whole point. Jesus didn't come to call the self-righteous, the self-satisfied, the self-deceived to repentance. He came to call those who were sick and who realized it. You know, as long as you don't think you need Jesus, you're not going to pursue Him. You're not going to be interested in Him. As long as you feel like you've got life by the tail and everything's going the way that you want it to go and, and, and you don't really need God, everything is fine. You've got it under control. I don't know about you, but the last time I grabbed something by the tail, it turned around and bit me. So be careful when you think you've got the world by the tail. You've got the wrong end. You, you, can't, you can't control this world. You can't control life. You may feel like everything is fine for you right now and you don't need God. But give it a little time. Can you, keep your, can you prevent yourself from getting cancer? No. Can you prevent yourself from dying? No, you can't. Can you prevent tragedies from coming into your life? No, you can't. Oh, maybe we can take some precautions and, you know, we should wash our hands and do all the and, and take care of ourselves and, and work to, to stay as healthy as we can and to stay out of dangerous situations. I mean, there is that responsibility on us, but even so, we can't prevent tragedies because we're not in control. But as long as we think we are, as long as we think we don't need God, God will let us alone. He will let you go on in that self-deceived manner. And one day you're going to crash and you're going to see that you're not in charge. As long as that pride fills your heart, there's nothing God can do for you. But if like Matthew, 
you realize that you're not in charge, that you're not perfect, that you're not righteous, and that you're not holy, and that you're not God, and that really what you need is everything that God offers to you. And if you're like Matthew, and you hear that call, and your heart yearns for what Jesus offers, and you get up and you follow Him, you are the one for whom He has come. You are the one who will be saved. That word repentance is an interesting word. It's an extremely important word. And it means to change the mind. To change the way that you're thinking. Every single one of us here has a particular way that we think about life. How it ought to work. How it ought to be. We have a particular way of thinking about ourselves. That we're good. To repent means that we change our way of thinking. No longer do we look at the world through our standard. We look at the world and ourselves through the lens of God. And we see that it's not what we think it is. That we are not what we think we are. And we repent. We say, God, you're right. I'm wrong. I'm going in this direction. The wages of my sin is death. There is a way that seems right to me, but the ends are the ends of death. God, I don't want that. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to repent. I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to change the way I think. And I'm going to follow you. That's what Matthew was faced with the day that Jesus walked by the tax booth and looked at him and said, follow me. And that's the very same situation that you are in today. Maybe you've been here before. Maybe you have heard a message like this that has called you to repentance, but you haven't done it. You've, you've felt that tugging, you've felt that conviction, but your pride has gotten in the way, and, and you just you haven't said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You haven't said, God, my way of thinking about myself and my life is wrong, and, and I need to think about you the way and, and about myself the way your scripture presents it you know God does give opportunities for us to turn to him but they're not endless opportunities if you feel you sense that tugging in your heart that conviction in your very soul that you're not ready for eternity, you're not ready to stand before God, then come, follow Jesus. Repent and believe the Gospel. That's your only hope. You're not going to be able to reform yourself. You're not going to be able to fix things on your own standard. You need to come to God on His terms. But following Jesus, though it begins in a moment, is a lifetime 
commitment. So believer, you've given your heart and life to Christ. Are you still following Him? Are, are you still as passionate about Jesus today, two, three, fifteen, twenty, fifty years after the moment of your salvation? Are you as passionate today as you were back then? Are you more passionate to follow Christ with greater zeal, with greater desire? Are you growing in your walk with Him? We need to be every single day. When Jesus, and we'll get to it a little bit later in Mark, when He calls His twelve disciples, He calls them to be with Him 24 hours a day from that moment until the day that He's crucified. When Jesus calls us, He calls us to that kind of intense relationship. The problem with so many Christians today is that they look at Jesus as an add-on. I've got a pretty nice life. Ah, oh, there's a few things that I'm ashamed of, a few things that I, you know, and I, I want God to take care of that, but really I've got a pretty good life. So, Jesus, I want to trust you, and, and when I need you, I'll call on you. He, he's just kind of an add-on to life. Mm -mm. That's, that doesn't work that way. That's not answering the call of Jesus. The call of Jesus is to follow Him 24-7, 365 days a year with intensity and growing relationship for the rest of your life. That's the call that Jesus makes. That's the call that Matthew responds to. And as we, see, as we keep going through Mark, we're going to see that Matthew and Peter and James and James, you know, all of them are, are, are kind of up and down. There are times when they get it right. There are times when they get it wrong. But throughout their ministry, throughout the rest of their lives, their relationship begins with Jesus and it grows. And that's what God is calling us to. A relationship that is real, that is life-changing, that will have its ups and downs, but on the whole, throughout the totality of it, it is a relationship that deepens and grows and becomes more precious, and we become more like Jesus Christ because we are following Him. So how is it for us today? Where do you fall? You're in one of those two camps, by the way. Either you don't know Christ and you need to, or you know Christ and you need to follow Him with a passion. That's the only two groups that are here today. Which group are you in? Are you growing in your relationship? Do you need that relationship? Don't leave this place without crying out to God, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I need forgiveness. I need what Jesus offers. I want that relationship that will transform my life and make me acceptable in your sight. 
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. It, it is incredibly practical. It reaches down into our hearts and minds and it makes us uncomfortable, Lord. But that's a good thing. Because we need to be stirred up out of our self-deceiving comfort. And we need to look at the reality of life and the reality of our relationship with You. And Father, if what we claim is not true, we need to turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and say, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, if there are those here today that don't know You as their Savior, I pray that Your Spirit will bring such conviction into their lives that they will turn to You and find in You the forgiveness and cleansing and healing that they so desperately need. And Father, I pray for my fellow believers, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's easy, Lord, for that intense relationship to, to cool at times. We still live in a world that wants to draw us away from You. We still struggle with those things. But Lord, help us who know You to confirm again that desire and that commitment to follow You. To follow You wherever You might lead us. Because, Lord, it's in Your presence, it's in following You that we have the greatest joy, the greatest peace, the greatest comfort, the greatest assurance that we could possibly have. So, Lord, please work in our hearts this day to bring salvation and to bring revival. We pray it all in Your precious name. Amen.